Well, that was a great song to close with, how deep the Father's love for us, as we are going to dive back into the book of Hosea. And if you're visiting with us tonight, we've been going through this um, Old Testament um, prophet, and um, it's been a great study for us. And it's all about God's love, his relentless, undying, never-ending love for wayward sinners like us, and pictured first and foremost in the nation of Israel. And so tonight we're going to be looking at two chapters. Typically we've been taking a a chapter a night, but uh, tonight I want to do two chapters, chapter 12 and chapter 13, so that we can uh, finish up with chapter 14 next week, and then take our break for our uh, concert prayer, the monthly prayer meeting we have the first of the month, and then, Lord willing, launch into a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. How does that sound? And so, looking forward to uh, begin studying that book. Again, another book I've never taught before, and so really excited to learn what God has for us, what God has for me uh, in that book of Ecclesiastes. But I've entitled these two chapters tonight, Hosea chapter 12 and Hosea chapter 13, as sin's silver lining. Now that may seem like an odd expression. How could sin have a silver lining? But we know based on Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God causes what? All things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think included in that all things, believe it or not, is sin. Now, not that we should think, oh, great, so I'm just going to go out and sin so that something good will happen. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Um, Sin is bad. Sin is evil. Sin is um, disobedience to God and his word. Uh, Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound so that we may see the silver lining in sin? No. But the good news is that God can even take something as wicked and as evil and as hurtful and painful and destructive as our own sin and somehow bring good from it in the end. And uh, that's an expression that we oftentimes hear or use Right? Every cloud has a silver lining. And uh, this is just a way of saying that in every bad situation, there's an element of good, there's a possibility of good. And I think when, it, when that f- uh, phrase or that expression is used, uh, that, that uh, there's the silver lining, I think it's meant to provide comfort. It's meant to provide hope to someone who's in an otherwise desperate or unhappy situation. And I think that picture that should come into our minds when we say that every cloud has a silver lining is that that picture of that ominous looking dark rain cloud or thunderhead storm cloud that's outlined in this brilliant shining light. We've all seen that, haven't we? Up in the sky. And that's the idea that, that every cloud has this silver lining. There's the sun shining behind it, right? You can't see the sun, but you can almost see the outline, if you will, uh, coming around that, that cloud. And here in the book of Hosea, the dark storm clouds of God's wrath loomed ominously over the nation of Israel. They had sinned against God, 
by not remaining faithful to their promises to honor and obey him and to have no other gods but him. And God, as we're learning from the book of Hosea, likened them to an adulterous wife who had developed the habit of going after other lovers who would use her and leave her. And as a consequence, for their unrepentant pattern of spiritual adultery, God would punish them by removing them from the promised land and sending them into exile, uh, into captivity in Assyria. And so God sent the prophet Hosea to, to call Israel to repentance, to turn from their sinful, rebellious ways, or they would experience God's wrath. And yet in the midst of this ominous prophecy that in many ways is bad news, right? We see the glorious love of God for sinners shining forth more brightly in Hosea than maybe any other book in the the Old Testament, maybe even the whole Bible. And we see how God is likened to this faithful husband who just relentlessly pursues his wayward wife and redeems her, purchases her, buys her back out of the slave market of sin. And really the picture of God and Israel is is embodied in in the prophet himself and his marriage, Hosea, married to this uh, adulterous woman named Gomer. And in the first three chapters, basically we hear Gomer's testimony, or excuse me, Hosea's testimony, and what it was like to be married to this unfaithful woman. And so uh, building on that, his own life story, if you will, God had called him to be an illustration of his own sermons that he was going to preach. He goes on to preach these sermons in chapters 4 through 14, where he indicts Israel of their adultery, of their waywardness, and talks about how God's going to judge them for it. But then at the end of, that, of the book, and we're, we're here in the final chapters, he talks about how God was going to reinstate or restore Israel. And so starting in chapter 4, really all the way to chapter 10, seven straight chapters of preaching about sin and judgment and punishment and God's wrath and his discipline. And, and um, you're just like, oh man, I, I just can't even stand this anymore. It's just like the same thing every week, right? And, and we said, hey, hopefully this is causing us to be fearful of sinning, right? That we're seeing what God thinks of sin and what sin, our sin does to God and, and what he must do to us as a result. And so all of this talking about sin and judgment and punishment is all good for us, right? But in the midst of all that, Hosea highlighted how God's undying love for Israel would ultimately prevail. And so from behind this this black backdrop, if you will, of Israel's impending doom, we see the glimmer of of God's love reappearing in these last four chapters. It's as if this, this storm cloud rolled over us and it was like pitch black. And everybody's like, right? And and we're seeing now this storm cloud beginning to move away, and we're seeing from behind the storm cloud comes this the, the sun. The sun's coming back out, if you will. And it's, this, and it's the beauty of God's love. And so it started last week. We looked at chapter 11, where Hosea highlighted God's love for Israel from three different perspectives. 
We said that God showed his love to them in the past through redeeming them, through redemption, uh, drawing, pulling them out of Egypt. Uh, God showed his love in present tense through their retribution, that, that uh, the love he was showing them and punishing them was tough love. It was the love of a father disciplining a child. And then we said we, God will show his love for them in the future by restoring them. Now, moving into chapter 12 now, we're going to see how Hosea reverted again to the subject of Israel's unfaithfulness and their need to repent as their only hope of redemption. And, and really, this is in chapter 12 and 13, this is Hosea's concluding indictment of Israel, as if his case for, against Israel hadn't already been made, right? I mean, he's throwing the book at Israel. And, and yet he comes back now, and, and so he he's, he's makes this concluding, almost the, like his, maybe his final statement, his final remarks, like, a, like an attorney would come out, right, before a jury and, and just kind of make his final statement before they deliberate. But uh, here he's making his final statement of the punishment that they would face. But again, in the midst of Israel's foreboding future, God, through the mouth of Hosea, provided them a ray of hope. And we're going to see that tonight. Uh, in these two chapters, there's really one verse in particular, and that's very typical of the book of Hosea. You'll have a whole chapter, right, dedicated to, to God's wrath and God's punishment against their sin. And then in the midst of that chapter, there's just one verse or even maybe one phrase, right, that gives them a little ray of hope. And we're going to see that um, when we get to chapter 13, and you can see if you can pick out this verse as we go through it. I've just, just to make it simple, I've just divided these two chapters um, into two points. Basically, chapter 12, we're going to see how God reminded Israel of her past and used that really as leverage to motivate them to repent. And then in chapter 13, we're going to see how God warned Israel about her future because she didn't repent. And so let's look first of all at chapter 12, God reminding Israel of her past and really, we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 12. I told you last week we, we, we stopped at verse 11 because verse 12, while it is in uh, most English translations included in chapter 11, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's included in chapter 12. And as you're going to see, it fits better with the contents of chapter 12 anyway. And so um, notice what he says, verse 12, Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is always unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is what? Faithful. Make sure you underline that phrase. That's what this whole book is about. God's faithful love, right, to his unfaithful people. And so in contrast to, to God, who was always faithful to keep his promises... Israel was unfaithful to keep their promises to God. And notice it says, they surrounded him with lies and deceit. Referring to their hypocrisy, their unfaithfulness. And we said that they would oftentimes uh, worship the Lord. At least that's what they wanted God to think, that they were worshiping him. But they were actually worshiping Baal. And they were... They had mixed the worship of God and the worship of, of Baal, and it was, it was a de de devoid of any true worship. Interesting here, and we're going to see the connection in just a moment, but that word deceit in the house of Israel 
uh, is surrounded with deceit. That's the same term that was used to describe Jacob's deception in stealing Esau's blessing. Remember that? We're going to look at that in a little more detail in this, as we move into chapter 12. But notice, again, the connection. Verse tw- chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So again, he's talking about Ephraim in chapter 11, verse 12. He's talking about Ephraim in chapter 12, verse 1. That's, that's the connection. We know Ephraim was the leading tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel, the, 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 the ten northern tribes, but it was also used to represent all ten of the northern tribes. It was a synonym for the nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, whenever it says Ephraim. Um, notice it says, they feed on the wind. You say, what is that? Well, they pursue the east wind continually. What's the east wind? He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with who? Assyria, who was from the east. And so the idea here is that that Israel was futilely depending on these treaties with with the Assyrians and the Egyptians for their survival. And, um, And rarely, if ever, did they truly benefit from their relationships with these foreign Nations, they were their enemies. And yet they were, if you, if you want to put it this way, they were getting in bed with their enemies. They were sleeping with the enemy for protection rather than trusting who? God. God said he would protect them. And yet they were leaning on their enemies to protect them. And they would play one off the other. And this is interesting. We talked about this, that they would make a, a treaty with Assyria. And then kind of behind the back, they would go make a, a treaty with Egypt. And that's why uh, Syria ultimately came and, and destroyed uh, Israel, the ten northern tribes, because they were, they were two-timing them. They, they, were, they, were, they, were given, they were sent in olive oil, if you will. That's what the, it says here. Olive oil or oil is carried to Egypt. They were, they were doing a deal on the side with Egypt when they had made some kind of allegiance to or made some kind of covenant with, with Assyria. So not only did they, they couldn't keep their covenants with God, they weren't faithful to their covenant with God, they weren't faithful to their covenant with anybody even the enemy nations. Look at verse 2. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Again, this is a, a reminder that while God's main issue, main beef was um, with Israel at the time, at the time of Hosea, he also had a problem with Judah because he saw Judah following in the same path of, 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 of his big sister, if you will, uh, big brother, uh, Israel, right? The two southern tribes were, were beginning to do the same kinds of things. And so he said, you know, I'm going to have to punish them too. And we know that that's what happened. The nation of Babylon came against them right about 150 years after Assyria destroyed uh, Israel. The word Jacob there, when it says, and will punish Jacob according to his ways, again, that, that's really a word for all of Israel, that's both the northern and the southern kingdoms, which were both guilty before God. And again, Jacob was the father of Israel, right? Uh, he was the one whose name was changed from Jacob uh, to, to Israel. Notice verse 3, and, and he, he begins to describe, Hosea describes him. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. Remember that? 
And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. And so here, Hosea zeroes in on the father of the nation of Israel, who was probably, unfortunately, most well-known for his what? Deception. And yet he repented of his deception and God blessed him. That's the point. Um, The name Jacob literally means heel grabber, right? The deceiver, a, a trickster. And so, in fact, his birth foreshadowed the kind of person that he would be because uh, as he came out of the, the womb, again, he was twins with Esau, right? And Esau came out first. He was a firstborn, but Jacob was, was grabbing onto his heel, right? And he was coming on out right behind him with his, grabbing his heel. And, and again, he, he, the, the way he was born foreshadowed the fact that he was going to be grabbing at his, nipping at his brother's heels. And we know that ultimately he deceived his dad, right, um, Isaac, and uh, dressed up, you know, put the, right, made him think he was Esau and uh, made him that stew while Esau was out in, uh, in the wilderness getting some food to, to make for his father. Uh, Jacob made the stew uh, with the help of his mom, right? The mama's boy that he was, apparently, right? Help, uh, he had the help of his mom. He dressed up like Esau, put some of his clothes on him so he smelled like him, put some fur on his arms because I guess uh, Esau was a lot hairier than Jacob, and he deceived his Dad and his dad blessed him and basically gave him his birthright. And uh, this was in Genesis chapter 27, where this all happened. And uh, as a result, of course, Esau came home, found out what Jacob had done, and he was livid. And so, what did Jacob have to do? He had to flee for his life and ended up spending years laboring as a shepherd for his uncle Laban who gave him a taste of his own medicine. In other words, what, what, uh, what goes around comes around, right? And so God says, okay, you want to deceive? I'll show you what that's like. And uh, you remember the story, right? He meets um, uh, Rachel, uh, Laban's daughter, falls in love, thinks she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And so he works for her uh, for seven years and then on the wedding night, after the wedding, he shows up in the wedding chamber, right? And it's all dark and everything. And all of a sudden, he, he wakes up the next morning, and it's Leah. Laban had deceived uh, Jacob. And instead of giving him his younger daughter, it was inappropriate that the younger daughter would get married before the older daughter. And so he said, I'm going to give him my older daughter. And so even though he worked for seven years for Rachel, he got Leah. Talk about... Right, getting getting um, getting your own uh, medicine, if you will, getting treated the same way you've tra- treated others. And so, as you know, he worked another seven years to earn the hand of Rachel, and so he married sisters. That was awkward, I'm sure. Um, but um, through Rachel and Leah came the twelve tribes of Israel, right? The twelve sons. And so um, after some more deception going back and forth, you know, uh, Jacob wanted to get back at at Laban for his deceiving him. And so he deceived him back by, you know, uh, breeding the sheep in a certain way and the goats in a certain way that basically 
stacked his herds, you know, and um, basically beefed up his herds and uh, really minimized Laban's herds, and they had a falling out, and uh, so Jacob knew it was time to go, and so he secretly escaped back to Canaan with Laban in hot pursuit because he had stolen some of the, um, some of the idols, some of the gods, if you will. Um, in fact, it was, his do- it was his wife's that did it, not him. But it was on his journey back home that God humbled Jacob and broke him. I mean, truly broke him for the years of deception and self-reliance, leaning on his own ability to deceive and connive and manipulate situations for his own ends. And if you remember, he was approaching uh, the land of Canaan, and he started thinking about, you know, I haven't seen my brother in a long time. What if he hasn't forgiven me? (laughs) I could be going back to my grave, right? He could meet me and kill me. And so he developed this plan to appease his brother's anger, and he divided up all of his stuff, right? And he sent all these gifts. He sent one servant with a bunch of goats, and another servant with a bunch of donkeys, and another servant with a bunch of camels, right? And a bunch of sheep, and a bunch of cows, and a bunch of bulls. All these little gifts along the way that were going to meet him in a systematic way before he ever got to Jacob, who was way in the back, right? And then he actually divided his, his, his people, his family, into two groups, obviously sent the wife he didn't like as much first, right? In case she got knocked off, it wasn't that big of a loss, right? So he put Leah in front, okay, with her kids, and then put Rachel second with her kids, right? And he sent them off, hoping that Esau would be merciful to him, and forgive him, but just to be safe, right? Um, he was gonna he was gonna bring up the bring up the rear. Well, this was a turning point in Jacob's life. Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis thirty-two, and this is where we see that uh, account where Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Genesis chapter thirty-two, verse nine. And, and here, this is after he, he, he sends everybody off, um, or as he was preparing to send everybody off. Notice Genesis 32. Listen to Jacob's heart. Verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, and he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. And so the sense I get is this guy is truly soft to the Lord right now. And he's acknowledging that everything he had was from the Lord. And he wasn't taking any credit for his wisdom, his deception, his ability to manipulate, his wisdom in, in, in breeding in breeding the different uh, animals the way he did to, to build up his flocks. He, he gave all the glory to God, and he's basically coming back to God's promise to him that said, you said that you're going uh, you're gonna, to you're gonna cause me to flourish, and, and, and my descendants will prosper as the sand of the sea. Too great to be numbered. And so verses 13 through 23, he sends off... Uh, the, the gifts, right? The gift animals. He sends off his first wife. He sends off his second wife. 
And then notice verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. You say, who's that guy? Where'd he come from? Well, let's see. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. So Jacob had a stranglehold on this guy, and he says, let me go, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob was, was determined to have this guy, whoever he is, bless him. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, or stri- uh, striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. And so most Bible scholars will say that this man that he wrestled with was uh, the angel of the Lord, who is the was the, the basically a pre-incarnate um, appearance of Jesus Christ. The second member of the Trinity is who this man was that he was wrestling. He was wrestling with God, right, in human form, and um, that's typically the angel of the Lord who is referred to uh, in in the in the Old Testament. But then um, notice, this was, this was Jacob's turning point. He, he wrestled with God, and, and God broke him, right? To the point he walked with a limp, right? Uh, just, an, again, a picture of a broken man. And, um, and then notice chapter 35, uh, 35 Genesis 35. He, he made it home, by the way. He meets Esau. Esau forgives, Esau forgives him. He embraces him, uh, kisses him. They weep. And there's a great reunion, and he, and he basically says, hey, settle wherever you want. And so Jacob settles in Shechem, and then later on he moves to Bethel. This is Genesis 35. Then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So this is where when he left, he, 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 had to, he went to this place and he fell asleep. You remember, right, and he saw the, the vision of Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending, and God promised to basically, uh, Jacob said, listen, if you go with me, you protect me, uh, I, will, I will basically, um, you know, do whatever you want me to do. And so God promised to bless him. And so he went back to that place of blessing that he had named Bethel. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods who were with him. Excuse me, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and let us rise and go up to Bethel and we'll make an altar there to who? To God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. And so they had become idol worshipers is what had happened, right? Over with Laban and his family, they were not worshiping God. They were idol worshipers, so they picked up all these idols. And so Jacob knew it's time to make the break, right? 
We're going to get rid of these foreign gods, get rid of these foreign idols, and we're going to be true to the one true God. And so again, at Bethel, God renewed his covenant promises with Isaac, the father of Israel, the father of the 12 tribes. So all that being said, as we understand that background of the life of Jacob and God's dealing with Jacob and how he brought him to repentance, right, and uh, renewed him to um, uh, faithfulness, I think Hosea's point here in Hosea chapter 12 is that rather than chasing after the wind and being deceptive, right, the way Israel was, they should be repenting of their sin and begging and pleading with God for his blessing just like their forefather Jacob. And if they did, God would do the same thing for them as he did for Jacob. He forgave him. He restored them. And he, uh, he, he recommitted, recovenanted with him, if you will. And so notice verse 6. Therefore, return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. See, Jacob's problem was he didn't wait on the Lord. He didn't trust the Lord. He took matters into his own hands, right? And that's what the nation of Israel was doing at the time. And he says, hey, listen, you need to be like your forefather, Jacob. You need to imitate Jacob by depending on God rather than yourself. Verse 7 a merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. And so basically, if they did repent, Israel would have to do a complete 180, a complete turnaround, right, in all of her dealings, all of her attitudes, because apparently, according to these verses here, they were... Uh, the country was permeated with all sorts of dishonesty and pride. And, and, and um, this, this reference to a merchant was basically a reference to being a Canaanite. The people that they were supposed to drive out of the land of Canaan because of their dishonesty, their deception. But they had adopted the ways of the Canaanites. So basically God's saying, you're just like the Canaanites. You're no better than the Canaanites. In fact, you're worse than the Canaanites because you know better. And you know that um, oftentimes in the Old Testament, dishonest scales were, were, were talked about, right, as the, as the example of a dishonest business person, that they would rig the scales to weigh out less merchandise than the buyer thought he was actually getting. And so basically what they're saying is that, that God was saying through Hosea that Ephraim, like Jacob of old, was, was a cheating, self-reliant boaster who thought they were immune to being found out or punished. I mean, Jacob thought he was getting away with all this stuff, right? And, uh, he, and, and so was Israel. He was like, hey, no, uh, no iniquity, right? In all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity, which would be sin. In other words, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to find out. Well, God knew. And uh, notice verse 9. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. So God's just reminding them that, listen, <laughs> you think you're rich? You think you did all this you know, yourself? I mean, Jacob even acknowledged at the end of the day that it wasn't him, right? That I was the one that had blessed him with all this stuff. You need to acknowledge the fact that I'm the one 
that you owe your, all this blessing to. And, and since the very beginning, I've guided you and, and I've led you through the wilderness to the promised land. And if you fail to repent and acknowledge this, then I'm going to return you to like it was in the, in the wilderness where you lived in tents. And I think that as in the days of the appointed festival, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Where once a year they would build these little tabernacles and they would remember what it was like living in the wilderness, and it was a time to remember how God was faithful to provide for them in the wilderness. He said, you're going to go back to living in tents. Verse 10, I have also spoken to the prophets, and I gave numerous visions, and through the prophets I gave parables. In other words, God just saying, hey, I communicated you to you in all sorts of different ways. I mean, how could you possibly miss the message, Right? I was given to you through prophets, through visions, through parables, right? But you continue to fail to listen to me. I would say from time to time with our children as they, when they were younger and they were still of the spanking age that um, we would start off by speaking. And if they did something wrong and uh, that required some kind of discipline, I would begin with speaking to them and begin talking with them and exhorting them, and appealing to them, and, and reproving them with words. And, and if they responded to that reproof, if they listened to the words, to, to the things I was saying, right, that's as far as it ever got. Because they listened, and they were like, you're right, I was wrong, would you forgive me? And it stopped there. But if they wanted to argue, if they wanted to protest, if they refused to listen to the speaking, the speaking would lead to spanking. <laughs> and I would tell them, listen, you can either listen to, you respond to the speaking or respond to the spanking. It's your choice. And so that's where Israel was at. They had not responded to God's voice. And so God had to resort to spanking them because they didn't listen to his prophets. Verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are worthless. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like the stone heaps beside the furrows of the field. Again, these are just uh, cities, two cities well-known cities, both in the northern kingdom, that were notorious for their wickedness, their hypocrisy, their uh, idolatry, their altars, which would be broken down and destroyed and reduced to rubble. We've learned about Gilead in chapter 6, Gilgal in chapter 4 and 9 already. Just some more examples of, of Israel's wickedness. Verse 12 now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. Just a reminder of Jacob. We already told that story, right? Running off to, to Laban and having to work for his wife for seven years, and then another seven years. And, uh, by, but by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt, and by a prophet he was kept. And who are we talking about there? Moses, right? By the way, Jacob and Moses both started, right, as shepherds, lowly shepherds in a wilderness somewhere, a remote wilderness, shepherding sheep, and God brought them back, restored them to positions of leadership in Israel. But God is just reminding them of his goodness, reminding them of their humble beginnings. But then look at verse 14. Ephraim has provoked to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and bring back his approach to him. In spite of all of my goodness, okay, you have failed to respond, you failed to repent, and so you provoked me to anger. Of course, this is righteous anger, righteous indignation, and the Lord said, you're guilty, and uh, you will pay the price. 
And so again, a reminder of God's wrath. And so that chapter 12 was just really God reminding them of, of their history, and particularly their forefather Jacob, and using him as an example of someone who was just like them initially, but then he repented, and God blessed him. And uh, oh, that you would be like your father Jacob in, in coming full circle. Well, now he goes, moved from that last statement in verse chapter 14, or excuse me, verse 14, he moves into this, uh, this next chapter where basically God warns Israel about her future. And he continues, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal he did wrong and died. Now notice how it's talking about Ephraim in kind of different terms because now rather than being Israel or representing Israel, it says he exalted himself in Israel. And so Ephraim is used, I think, 37 times in Hosea. And again, it's usually used as a synonym, like we said, for the entire northern kingdom. But here, I think Hosea is clearly addressing the tribe in particular. Why? Because they held an exalted place among the tribes of Israel. And um, if you remember, um, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's two sons, right, that were born in the land of Egypt. And when Jacob finally came with the other 70 uh, people of, of, of his uh, family, and they came to the land uh, of, of Egypt. And uh, Joseph was so excited for his, his father to be there and bless his grandsons. And so he set them up. He brought them, and Jacob couldn't see real well. And, uh, and so he brought his two sons, and he put uh, Manasseh on his, on his right side, right? or his left side, so that his right hand could be on him because he was the firstborn, and you put your right hand on the firstborn to bless him, and your left hand was on the secondborn. And so he, he, Joseph came and lined up his sons. Manasseh was where he should have been, and, and Ephraim was where he's supposed to have been. And for a guy with bad eyesight, what did he do? <laughs> he purposely crossed hands, and he put his blessing, the right hand of blessing, on the younger son, on Ephraim. And again, Ephraim was the, the lead tribe. And uh, all the other tribes listened to them and followed their example. Um, in fact, Saul was of the tribe of what? Ephraim, okay? He was from, from that tribe. And so uh, they, they, he was the first king. So was Jeroboam the first, uh, who was the first king of the northern tribes. And so basically everybody kind of fell into line under Ephraim. And unfortunately, they were the ones who led Israel into, into sin, into Baal worship. They're the ones who initiated that. And as a result, they died spiritually. For through Baal, he did wrong and died. Verse 2, And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. And again, we said that Baal worship uh, was centered around these cows, right? These bulls, these golden calves. And so they're telling people to go kiss the calf. Psalm 2 says, kiss who? Kiss the sun, right? Not the calf. But they were worshiping these calves. Verse 3, Therefore they will be like the morning cloud, and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. Four uh, analogies. They're like, a, a, like the, the, the fog in the morning, the dew, and the chaff, and, and the smoke. Basically, showing all four of those things are, are transitory, right? They're there, and then they're gone. 
And that's the nature of idolaters. And then look at verse 4, and this is really a a sad, uh, ironic section, verses 4 through 8. Notice what's going on here. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness and the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud, and therefore they, what? Forgot me. And remember, that was what Moses said. Hey, guys, listen. The Lord's going to bring you into the promised land. He's going to bless you. Don't forget him. Don't forget him. That ultimately, he's the one who you owe all of your life and all of your blessing to. And so basically, all, after all that God had done for them, after all that God had been to them, they forgot him. And um, I'll never forget, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said how he described whenever he was tempted to sin, he likened it to a forgetfulness of God. That's profound when you think about it. That when you're tempted to sin, it's like God just goes out the window. Like you forget that there's a God. <laughs> you forget who God is and what God has done for you. And it's just like you, it's like God's gone out of your mind for that moment. And all you can see is that sin, right? And so again, we just see this is us. This is not the nation of Israel. So it is first and foremost, but it also secondary relates to us. That we forget God on a daily basis whenever we're tempted, whenever we give in to sin. We forget God. Right? The, 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 we, we get into these uh, spats with our spouse, right? Arguing in the kitchen, raising our voices, talking to each other like two little two-year-olds, right? And, 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 and do you forget that God's like right there, right? God's omnipresent. He's omniscient, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about, really practical stuff here. We forget God. So, he says, verse 7, I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear, robbed of her cubs. Man, you don't want to encounter a, a mama bear, right? Robbed of her cubs. And I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. And so this is, this is profoundly sad because here we see Israel's savior becoming Israel's destroyer. The one who delivered Israel now would have to destroy Israel. And he likens himself, God likens himself to four creatures, a lion, a leopard, a bear, and then um, this wild beast, which were all native to Palestine. They were known for their ruthless and relentless manner of killing their prey. But, but you have here the shepherd of Israel becoming the predator. And again, it's all the result of their sin, that God would have to punish them for their sin. And he says it in verse 9, it is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. That's the, that's the irony of it all. That they're fighting against the very one who's trying to help them. 
He says, I'm here. I'm here to help you. And they were fighting against him. I'll never forget when I took um, lifeguard training, which, by the way, I didn't get the job. Apparently, I wasn't a strong enough swimmer. But I will never forget one part of the training was that they, they basically had you stand on the side of the pool and one of the other guys would act like he's the drowning victim and you had to jump into the water and swim out to him and approach, right? Do the approach stroke. Those of you guys are lifeguards. Do the approach stroke, head up and you're looking, you're watching. And then the key was to get behind the person, right? Not in front of him. What's the first natural reaction of that person who's drowning? What is he going to do when you get close? He's going to grab a hold of you, right? And, and trying to save himself and he's going to pull you both down and you're both going to drown. In other words, they're fighting against the person who's trying to save them, right? And, and you have to turn them around and get, get them in a, almost like a, a chokehold and, and drag them to the shore, right? But that's the idea. Here's, here's the Savior of Israel. Here's God coming out to rescue them, and they're fighting against him. Verse 10. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested? Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. And here God is just saying, hey, where's that king you wanted so bad? Remember that? That uh, after the time of the judges where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, they were sick and tired of that mess, right? This is what it looks like when we don't have a leader. And so we want a king... Like what? All the other nations. And God had set up, raised up Israel, chosen Israel, called him out, raised him up, and said, I'm going to be your king. This is going to be a theocracy. And you can look to me, and I'll be your leader. You don't need a human king, because you have a divine king. And they said, no, we want a human king. We want somebody we can see. We want somebody to lead us into battle, right? We want a big, strong, strapping guy. That's why they picked Saul, who was head and shoulders above everybody else. Right? Ooh, there's the king of Israel. He's looking like a man, you know? And they, they wanted this, this human king. And so God said, okay, Samuel, go anoint Saul. And basically, God gave them exactly what they wanted. You want a king? Here you go. And where did it lead them? To a divided kingdom, right? On the, on the verge of being destroyed, the whole nation being destroyed. And the kings were the ones that had led them astray. They, they fought one another. They, 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 they were, remember here in uh, the northern tribe, like five kings, th- there was five different coups and five assassinations and, and, and crazy what was going on in the kings. And so he's like, hey, where's your king now? Go call your king. He'll help you. Almost mocking them for even asking for a king to begin with. Again, ultimately a lack of trust in the Lord, Right? Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The idea is, you know, something that is being saved up until the day of retribution. It's used as a testimony against the nation. Verse 13, the pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. Kind of an odd picture here, but I think the idea here is that because of the nation's failure to repent when they had the opportunity, God was likening them to a baby who wasn't smart enough to come out of the mother's womb at the right time. It's like, hello, it's time, right? Despite all of her strenuous labor to give birth to him, he was nowhere to be found. And that's fatal, by the way, right? When that baby doesn't come out at the right time, that's fatal. And so he's saying, 
you're like a dumb baby, right? Not that a baby even knows what to do. They're just kind of doing their thing, right? But um, I guess if you were a doctor or a nurse, you'd say they, do, they know exactly what to do, right? God, God wired them a certain way. But Israel wasn't doing that. But then verse 14. I don't know what translation you have. I have the New American Standard. Okay, it says, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Those first two questions, uh, they're asked like rhetorical questions, seemingly to convey that God would not withhold his wrath and judgment. In other words, are you kidding me? Am I going to ransom them from the power of death? Am I going to redeem them? Oh, death, where are your thorns? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Could be a negative expression. A lot of modern commentators take this as a negative expression just because everything around it is negative, right? What comes before it is negative, right? Talking about wrath and punishment. What comes after it is negative, wrath and punishment. So clearly verse 14 should be you know, taken in a negative context. If you've got an NIV, New International Version, it doesn't, Translate this as a question, but as a statement, doesn't it? And interesting, my old NAS, the, the non-updated version, does the same thing. I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Well, then I must be right. Just kidding. New King James says that? So it's a statement, not a question. And I think that's the key, is how you're going to interpret this. But I would like to think, because this is very, some guys will say, well, how, all of a sudden this little, this, this positive statement, and it's all this negativism, well, isn't that what we've seen in almost every other chapter? Like all this bad news, and all of a sudden there's one little ray of hope, one little phrase. And so I would like to think that this is clearly a, a, a promise. This is the, the silver lining of sin right here. That he's promising to ransom them from the power of death, to redeem them from death, just like he told Hosea to do with Gomer. He redeemed her from the slave market of sin. Verses 15 and 16. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming, upon from, coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Ooh. You say, what is that? Well, what that is, is the Assyrian invasion. And the Assyrians were notorious for their military atrocities, doing that kind of stuff. And God in his wrath was simply going to give Israel over and say, there you go. This is what you get. And so with the Lord's compassion removed, Israel's prosperity would come to an end and punishment would be unleashed upon them. And again, this is all the language of covenant cursing, right? If you obey me, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you, right? This is the language of God is keeping his promises here. He's being faithful even in judgment. Even to discipline and punish the nation of Israel, he's being faithful to his promises. 
Just like we've said in, in, um, in, that God is faithful to his promise in Galatians chapter 6. God is not mocked. A man, what? Reaps what he sows. And God keeps his promises. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap to the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap to the spirit. God keeps his promises. He's faithful to keep his promises, both for good and for bad, right? The positive promises and the negative promises. The promises of blessing, the promises of cursing. God's faithful. Now go back to verse 14, because this is our ray of hope, right? I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Sound familiar? Turn over to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is another reason why I think it's better to translate Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, in a positive light as a promise of redemption and restoration is because that's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15. He uses it in a positive light. And, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 is that classic discussion on the resurrection, on Christ's resurrection, on on Christ's followers' resurrection, and what that's going to look like, how it's going to happen. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Starting in verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for this perishable must, be, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality." I think this is a reference to the rapture, one of the two references here in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in 1 Thessalonians 4. In this moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, right, and the dead uh, in Christ will be raised um, and will be changed, will be instantly conformed to the image of Christ. And verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have to put on immortality... Then, we, then will come about the saying that is written. Ready? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? A direct quote from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. You say, what is that talking about? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. How cool is that? The Gospels in Hosea chapter 13, right? That, that it's through Christ's death and resurrection, right, that death is defeated and the power of sin is overcome and we can have forgiveness for our sin and death no, will no longer drag us to death, right, will no longer kill us and drag us to hell, but we can be delivered, we can be uh, victorious over sin and death if we are willing to turn from our sin, right, our rebellion against God, and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the means that God has provided to overcome sin and death. That's the hope for us, right? Who live in a world full of sin, 
a world full of sinners. We live lives, sinful lives. There's the hope. The hope lies in Christ, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, come back next week and we will look at the last chapter, Hosea chapter 14. And um, it's going to be a grand crescendo of God's faithful love for his unfaithful people. Father, we thank you for just your word and how it all ties together. Thank you for how the New Testament connects with the Old Testament and ultimately it all points to Christ and what he's done for us on the cross so that we could be, um, so that sin could be defeated and death would no longer have control or power over us, but that we could be victorious, Lord, over sin and over death. And um, Lord, I just pray that everyone here knows that joy and that blessing, Lord, that no one would be um, stubborn and foolish and rebellious and unrepentant in their heart, Lord, but we would be wise to listen to your word tonight and to respond to your word so that you don't have to resort to spanking and disciplining and punishing us, Lord, but that we would just have open and receptive hearts and responsiveness to your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.